The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? Will Smith was certainly at a crossroads as his hit television show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air wound to a close in 1996. He knew that he had the potential to be an A-list leading man and studios were certainly willing to roll the dice on his dramatic potential. But his proven marketability was still grounded in his charming wisecracker persona and his earliest films lean heavily on that. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. 1998's Enemy of the State is a perfectly pivotal role for Smith. His character starts out with Smith's trademark joke-heavy, what, me worry? attitude, but over the course of the film, John Voight's villainous oppression literally wipes the smile off his face, teaching him that he needs to take things very, very seriously. How seriously do we take this tale of criminal NSA overreach? That's going to be the topic of this episode of Spies Like Us. Enemy of the State is a 1998 film, contemporary events to that year. Featured agencies, we got uh, mostly the NSA. It's kind of a NSA versus democracy kind of flick. Mentions of the NRO as as an unwitting partner of the NSA, the FBI, and Mafia will make appearances that are small but important to the plot. It's kind of a kind of a man who knew too much sort of story or variation. Uh, in fact, I had been thinking just that that if they had kidnapped Will Smith's daughter, then it would have been very much. The man who knew too much. They don't kidnap his daughter, but uh, in one of the briefings, someone actually does suggest it. His, uh, yeah, his wife and son. I, I think the first thing people say or think about it is that uh, it's really weird that this movie came out before 9-11, as it seems to be eerily prescient regarding NSA domestic surveillance abuses. This was pre, like, the discussion of, like, you know... Uh, American privacy and going back and seeing it now was kind of eerie considering the events that followed. So it, it was, it was interesting to go back and watch it. And you had seen this movie before you said, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I don't know. Like high school time was probably when I first started, I don't know, like even hearing about the concept of conspiracies. And so I read a little bit into it. And so this was like a movie I wanted to watch when it had come out. Um, but oddly enough, uh, it actually kind of helped curb me away from going down crazy rabbit holes, you know, just watching Gene Hackman living in his little, uh, cage and like, Will Smith's like comment about it. Like you can, you can see those types that they just like see what they want to see anywhere they go. And so it kind of was helpful in the opposite way, I guess, of what the film was trying to accomplish. It like helped me like kind of keep my head straight. And not like fall into like those like weird, crazy rabbit holes that you can go down if you start even like looking at like anything conspiracy related. Is that is that because you didn't find the movie to be especially plausible? Oh, I found it very plausible. At, at that point, I was already aware of a lot of tech and the idea that surveillance had been happening. And, you know, what is this, 98? Yeah, it would have been well after the Family Jewels came out. Right. And so there, there was 
already enough information to know that there had been like domestic um, surveillance going on. Um, but I, I meant more like if the movie was plausible to me. It was more like not going down, you know, like the lizard people. Like if you, if you ever try and even look into any kind of conspiracy, like it, it goes like way off the reservation, like far, far off, like out in left field, you know, like, and you know, you start reading about lizard people and you start reading about the aliens and like you start reading. And I was just like this, this, like I would see people that would talk about stuff like that. And you could see that they had just gone down like this deep, 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 like hole in like that they couldn't get themselves out of. Cause like everywhere they looked was a conspiracy, you know? And it, and it was like the characterization of kind of uh hackman's character where he's just like living in a cage, like isolated from the world. Cause he can't trust anybody. It was something that kind of really uh, had a big impression of me at that time. I remember seeing the trailers of the film and, and feeling a little turned off. I didn't see it when it came out. I thought that uh, it looked to me to be quite a bit like paranoid and hand dringy and also, <laughs> and, and also super, super Bruckheimer in a way that uh, I like some Bruckheimer films for sure. But uh, yeah, this one didn't look great to me. I was pleasantly surprised. I found this one to be really actually a lot of fun to watch. I've decided this is how this is how I want to describe the work of Mr. Bruckheimer. I think his movies are like you go to the store and you buy the most expensive, like super fine cut of steak. And then you throw it on the barbecue, burn it to a crisp, and drown it in barbecue sauce. <laughs> <laughs> you know That's what I'm saying? Good, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't think. I can't think of another producer that has such uh, what I, I want to say, like deep fingerprints on the movies uh-huh. he produces. Um. I feel like when when you're when you're telling someone what to expect from a film, it's more important to tell them that Bruckheimer produced it than it is to tell them who directed it. Right. <laughs> That's probably the few times like the producer's going to make a huge difference as far as the feel of the movie. <laughs> uh, speaking of directors, this is our second appearance uh, on our show from Tony Scott, uh, who also directed Spy Game which we liked quite a bit. Um, The script, uh, it's David Marconi. It seems to be his most notable script. uh, But I noticed it received three uncredited rewrites, including one by Aaron Sorkin. Oh, really? mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Who was, uh, this was like, maybe like his final gig as a script doctor which he'd been doing for, for this uh, studio. I forget what studio this comes out of, but um, he'd been doing that. It was Touchstone, I think. Okay. Yeah, he'd been script doctoring for them for about 10 years. This is like right before, like he must have already been in negotiations or whatever, or pre-production on The West Wing. Right. Um, because it comes out pretty soon after that. And then he becomes more of a showrunner uh, right. and, and producer than, than just a writer. The other guy... Or well, then there's another guy who I looked up and I, I can't find anything on him. But another of the people that did a pass on this script was Tony Gilroy, who we would know most for writing uh, the first four Jason Bourne films, 
and surprise to me, uh, was the co-writer of uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars. Oh, wow. Well, that explains a lot. (laughs) Yeah, there's some, there's some, yeah, there's some borny stuff in this one, especially the, um, we talked about in, in the Born Supremacy that uh, the, the, the surveillance state, the global surveillance government apparatus is kind of like this omniscient presence that almost feels like a, you know, a nameless, faceless character. Mm-hmm. In this film, we see the surveillance state operating at like, you know, perhaps somewhat slightly ridiculous levels of efficiency. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but in this case, instead of being faceless, it's very, very personalized in, in watching the people uh, that are, that are operating uh, these operations. We have, of course, John Voight in charge, Jamie, someone, and then they throw in a couple of uh, in, enthusi- well, ex- one of them very enthusiastic, but fairly enthusiastic Gen Xers, uh, Seth Green and uh, Jack Black. Right. As our, our, our operator types. Um, it was pretty fun to see them in like a not goofy role. I mean, they still kind of played the kind of, uh, you know, rebel young hacker type. Yeah, that that's you'll true. See in a that's lot of true. These movies. Jack Jack really only has one comedic bit where he's like right. going off over a uh, Latina uh, nanny's unshaved legs. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely humor in this film. Um, right. Not not that it's a comedy, but uh, they don't they don't miss opportunities to have jokes. I thought Seth Green was kind of weird here. Yeah. Um, as far as like, I mean, he really, really seems into it. Yeah. Uh, and he, the way, I don't know, the way his lines are written and stuff, it, it just feels like he's a much more like hard bitten veteran than he should be uh, for someone of his age. Right. <laughs> but beside it being kind of weird, I kind of liked it. I mean, I liked, I liked his kind of enthusiasm, his, his lust for the hunt. Uh, it was kind of infectious. And at the end of the film, uh, when they're interrogating Black and Green about what they knew, uh, and Seth says, like, oh, well, I just thought it was a training exercise. And this is just one of my final thoughts, because I just rewatched the ending a little bit, was uh, I was like, you know, Seth, I don't, I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's definitely strains credibility that either of them think this is a training exercise, at least after the first few beats right. of the film. And at least Jack Black seems to be developing some kind of uh, second thoughts. He's raising his hand and kind of offering like, you know, they're saying like, ah, this means this. And Jack Black's like, well, maybe it just means he was going for a walk or. Yeah. Or whatever, um, but uh, I think a smarter movie would have maybe involved these guys getting uh, a little more antsy about what they're involved in. Right? Like, like I like the idea that maybe Seth Green just doesn't give a shit, but <laughs> maybe uh, and and you know, please, like the movie's long enough. But uh, I think a smarter movie maybe would have paid a little more attention to Jack Black's increasing kind of uh, concern about about what's really going on 
Uh, enough about those guys, though. I want to flag this as a pretty important movie in Will Smith's career. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is still on the air in 1996. Uh, and he had just just launched his solo music career. Of course, he had the, whatever, the DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince kind of thing earlier. Uh, but uh, yeah, music career based on the success of his Men in Black theme song. He had already done Bad Boys, and he had already done Men in Black, but this is actually, I think you could say technically, this is Will Smith's first turn at playing the solo leading man of the film. You could kind of argue that Men in Black is technically, like, it's from his point of view. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went back and I looked at the posters, and and he is second build on yeah. that. It's uh, Mr. Jones first. I actually looked at this up, and, and his Jones. first lead role was Six Degrees of Separation or something. That it, it, it wasn't like a, a big film at all, so it wouldn't have been a big impact. But, like, yeah, as far as scale of film, I think this is probably, yeah. Have you, seen six de- have you seen Six Degrees? I have not. He is definitely not a leading man in that film. Oh, really? No. Yeah, no. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's, a charming, he's a charming stranger with a dark past, like all the main characters. It, it's, it's based on a play, and I think you could say it's kind of a, a story about the main characters falling under his spell, as uh-huh. as being super charming and then slowly learning that there's a lot more to him than meets the eye. Definitely, definitely a great uh, piece of acting by Will Smith, but totally different than anything he did after. Oh, like it's, right. it's very artsy. I would say. Oh, well, then I'm going to have to add this to my list. <laughs> uh, we mentioned that, uh, yeah, I mean, there is some, you know, this movie leaves some room for some jokes or winks at the camera kind of stuff anyways. But I also might say that, well, now I haven't seen Bad Boys, but I assume that it's quippy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right. So this was also the first time Will Smith was being asked to play like a straight no zingers kind of role, Um, or at least like more more serious than he had before. Uh, he's got a lot of zingers, but like, yeah, it's much more serious than he's played before. Right. And he said in an interview that I saw that actually that was kind of a struggle for him to restrain his comedic instincts. Oh, uh, okay. A great example of that is uh, when uh, when Scott Kahn asks him if he bought the lingerie for his wife, and he says, no, I bought it for himself. I like to do a little cross-dressing on the weekends. Uh, apparently that line was improvised. I was just, uh, he just couldn't help himself. <laughs> he had to throw it in there. <laughs> yep. We've got, you know, just another, you know, awesome day at the office for Gene Hackman. Looking over at his career, it just seems so consistent, like, over over the entire span of, of movies that he's done. His final film was in 2004. I hate, I hate when I go back and I notice that, like, these actors that I really love, that, like, they're never going to make another movie again. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me sad. Uh, Hackman's another repeat to our podcast, having been kind of in the on the opposite side of things in a way, uh, story-wise, in No Way Out. 
right? Like he could be considered kind of analogous to, you know, Hackman's character in No Way Out could be kind of analogous to the Tom, uh, John Voight. Yeah, he was role in this one. Yeah, kind of the villain. John Voight, who is the villain in this movie, um, actually, uh, I mean, he had just also done Heat and Mission Impossible. Uh, but these three films mark a, like a like a kind of beginning of a major return of John Voight to the screen. Uh, he was largely absent for the 15 years prior to this. Almost entirely. Oh, so this is kind of like a return? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, big time. Yeah, I remember when I, you know, started seeing John Voight in films and people would say like, oh, he's an amazing actor. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's only done like a couple things. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I've never seen, what is it? Something Cowboy? Midnight Cowboy or something like that? Midnight Cowboy. Isn't he known for? All right. He's known for a lot, but I think that's the one that everybody will bring up. That's like the classic. He's also in Deliverance. Oh, right, right. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. A lot of critics make reference to the movie The Conversation from 1974 when discussing this film uh, to the point where uh, on IMDb, one of the top most frequently asked questions is whether or not Gene Hackman is, is the same character in this movie as he played in The Conversation. Um, oh, because, That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he dresses the same, and his workshop is notably similar. Uh, I'm not sure if it has that Faraday cage in it in 1974, but it might. Uh-huh. Uh, and when they do find him in this movie, when they do finally track down his identity, the picture that comes up in his file is actually a picture of uh, his character from the conversation. Oh, really? <laughs> nice. Well, th- clearly there's something going on there. That, that's probably that's a definite homage from the director, right? And even though he's got a different name, I mean, it's entirely plausible to to think that. I mean, this the character he's playing definitely would have changed his name mm-hmm. by now, right? So uh, yeah, I would say it could be, it could be the same guy. We mentioned that the NSA wasn't happy about this. Uh, I, let's see, I've read like people literally like seeing the movie and like running home to call their bosses and saying, what the fuck? Um, there's even a report, I guess in one of the flybys over, you know, there's a lot of, um, well, it's not really satellite imagery, uh, but it's, it's supposed to be in the film. And I guess there's a shot that shows like an actual, you know, because they're showing like NSA headquarters or something. And there's an actual NSA agent that's in the shot that tried to sue them. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Unsuccessfully. We, you know, we've mentioned that the fallout from 9-11 precipitates a move by U.S. intelligence agencies to improve their image. And, and some of that appears to be wor- trying to work hand in hand with Hollywood to put more uh, pro intelligence agency stuff out there. Definitely the director of the NSA uh, cited this movie uh, particularly as like, this is the kind of, this is the kind of image of us that we can't just let go unchallenged. Right. 
Well, you know what? Like, even though, like, on the surface it makes the NSA look bad, John Voight's character was only, like, an assistant to the deputy director. Like, the wife was talking about how he would be deputy Uh He should have been, like, three years ago or something. And uh, and then even... um, Hackman's character talked about how much he loved the agency. He he was like a veteran. He was like a former NSA agent himself. So, in in the background, there's like some positive stuff. Like they tried to. It, it seems like, it seems like the storytellers, or at least the director, wanted to say, "Oh, it's not all the NSA. It's just here's this like power hungry guy." Um, but just if you just a first pass of the film, it does not leave a good feeling about the NSA back then. And even now, and I think it's even creepier, you know, going back and watching it now. Cause the whole point of the story was that John Voight's character was trying to get a bill passed to increase surveillance. And that's what the Patriot act accomplished, you know, post nine 11 and creepy and creepier enough. I made Todd stop the movie and go back and like, <laughs> Go back because they when uh, Hackman looks up Voight's character, he gets his birthday and it's nine eleven forty. So I I don't know if 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 you want to kind of just try and like grab the low hanging fruit for that or if it's an accident. But it was really creepy seeing it now than it was back then. You know. Uh, and it was already kind of creepy watching the surveillance back then in this film. Like, so it, yeah, I, I, I would say it doesn't paint a great light for the NSA, but uh, I, I, I definitely understand that the feelings that people who are working for the agency might've felt because it's, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it, it's not helpful, you know, in some ways, even though it's trying to be enlightening in, in most ways, I guess. I don't know. It was it was interesting. It was just kind of creepy going back and watching it now. <laughs> oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So uh should we give it minus spy points for the filmmakers for, for leaving uh leaving a clue in their film that nine eleven was in fact an inside job? <laughs> right. Yeah, it makes me concerned about Jerry Bruckheimer, you know? Like if if that wasn't an accident that, that makes me wonder, like, what his affiliations are, you know? Because I'm definitely not, like, those people that think the government was behind 9-11. Uh, but, like, clearly something was going on, you know what I mean? And so if 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 this little Easter egg here from a film, what, 90, 1998, you know, comes out, it's, it's a little, little concerning. For for Bruckheimer, in fact, watching it now makes Bruckheimer look worse than the NSA does, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Either that or the director was it Tony Scott? Tony Scott, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, Tony Scott. A lot of his films uh, uh, deal with uh, surveillance kind of mm-hmm. issues. I put a I put another movie on our list, Deja Vu. Okay, uh, I still gotta look into that uh, in a little more detail. And speaking of detail. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. I like this opening scene with Voight and Robards for its efficiency. 
Yeah. Um, they very quickly establish what the background stakes of the film are, which is uh-huh. security versus freedom. You know, right. and it's and it's done very efficiently. Boom, we got our our setup, the event, the murder of uh, it's Jason, right? Jason Robards, senator character that's going to. He was a congressman, but he also called him Mister Chairman. Right. So I think he's kind of like a higher level congressman. I think you mentioned it was kind of like a McConnell type of situation. Right. He's the senator that's got clout. He's got right. he's got the ability to uh, bully his other members into uh, voting for this basically, you know, uh, Patriot Act before the Patriot Act. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny thing about that, you know, I mean, it just, it just bears mentioning that Voight is so keen on getting this bill passed. It's so important to him that he's going to murder a U.S. senator. Uh, when throughout the film we see him basically just free-handedly doing all the shit that you imagine that this act would let him do. I, th- I think we both kind of were like, why was this murder necessary? Um, I understand what he's trying to do with the conversation. He- he's just saying, like, look, I'm not telling you to vote for the bill, but just kind of let your fellow congressmen, um, you know, your fellow reps or whatever, like you know, make their own vote and their own decisions, you know, cause I, I, you couldn't control the entirety of legislation, but you could make some influential moments. And that's kind of what he's doing. It even gets to the point where he tries to what blackmail him. The murder was kind of silly. I, well, the, the murder itself was well executed, you know, it, it was quick and clean and whatever. And then they planted the pills to make it look like he OD'd or something. I, I don't, I don't understand like what the murder is going to accomplish. Like, I was thinking that maybe it would help their other guy that's really behind the bill climb up to be a chairman, but I don't see any evidence of that in the film because he doesn't climb. He's still just the guy that's kind of the major face behind the bill. Right. Yeah. Cause there is that other Senator that's on the news with Larry King and that guy's very, very pro this act. And, and maybe we could have had, a little bit more connective tissue to say like, like that somehow that guy was like next in line, that that guy would be, you know, that Robard's uh, death would have put him in the driver's seat somehow, maybe. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get to see any of that. So Todd and I are still kind of baffled as to what's going on with this plan that Void has. But, uh, no, I agree with you. The, the opening scene was great to watch, but when you kind of like dig into it, you're kind of like, what, wait, what? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Bruckheimer's barbecue. (laughs) We're we're there. Uh, Voight's guy. uh, Oh, Jamie Kennedy. That's the guy whose name I was thinking of. Uh, That's like Voight's kind of, kind of right-hand man. Um, He finds out near instantly what the cops know, which is, oh, which is by the way, that the murderer was accidentally videotaped by our Jason Lee, um, natural photographer or uh i don't know it's, he was like a journalist and an environmental proponent and he was videotaping geese migration like canadian geese migration so mm-hmm. he had like this he had this uh hidden video camera set up to watch geese and it, it caught the footage of the murder right and the fact that uh jimmy kennedy finds out so quickly uh, you know, because it's a cop that notices, like, hey, there, there was a video of it. 
Um, which it's funny, like the cops, I guess, you know, the Voight and his guys are so much faster on the case than the cops are. And oh. come to think of it, the cops never followed through. Well, that cop was working for him. He, he called Voight. I think he was undercover working for Voight. That you talking about the guy that noticed the camera? Oh, uh, okay. Because that was that was my first thought that I thought he was a plant that was in there. So yeah, I like that better. I like that better because I got that feeling from him. Yeah, he that phone call that he made and that whole conversation that they had that was the other end was Voight, and then you saw that he was like, "Oh, I hate doing this at Christmas." <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, he launches, Voight, that is, launches into his operational mode with zero hesitation. Also scary. Uh, very, very efficient. No nonsense. I wanted to talk about, delve into some of the, the orders that he gives and some of the acronyms that get thrown around. We get a little acronym salad in this mm-hmm. film. A fair, a fair helping on the side of our Bretheimer yeah. barbecue. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, let's see. We need two techs with full electronic capabilities, two Humpty Dumpties. Now, I'm going to assume there that the guys that they end up getting refer to Jack Black and Seth Green. So, okay. Two techs with full electronic capabilities, two Humpty Dumpties. I really searched pretty. I mean, I put my due diligence in. I cannot figure out what a Humpty Dumpty is. (laughs) (laughs) I have never heard that term before used in spy parlance. Do you have any thoughts? No, I think, I think that's what you're talking about is our Seth Green and Jack Black character is probably what it is, but I've never heard that either. Um, It's not on the spy museum glossary. I mean, he did Uh, sit on a wall. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Or I also saw, thought, um, let's see. Oh, yeah, there's also a, some kind of reference to the Humpty Dumpty character in Alice in Wonderland as being like a, well, like dumb, ignorant. Uh, and, and Oh, maybe it could be somebody that doesn't know any better or something. Yeah, I guess, I guess. Uh, he also wants uh, some ex-military cutouts. And I like the sound of that term. What's a cutout? What do we think about that? Well, cutout is some like an intermediary, uh, but I don't know why they would call those guys cutouts. Because if the if we're thinking the two guys that he's calling cutouts are the, well, I guess so. They would be the. It's basically the separation between Voight and the operation. But a cutout is generally like someone that's on the the communication trail. So you, you give a thing to a guy and the guy gives it to the head guy. The the middle guy would be the cutout. Right. The most extensive thing I found regarding cutouts was um, uh, like scientists that were giving talks at conferences that were uh-huh. being secretly uh, paid by the CIA to give those talks and to point the discussion in certain directions. Um, and the thing I noted on that, at least on that operation or, uh, or set of operations was that, uh, there was a note that like each cutout knew that he was helping the CIA, but didn't know why. And the agency would only use him once. So I think that fits in with the idea of separation. Mm -hmm. Like these are guys that if they talk, well, 
they they can only talk about just one specific thing and they really don't know what you know what's going on above them you're gonna you're gonna use them once and then cut them loose never use them again and i guess that creates the separation i like the term yeah uh i hope we're understanding it understanding it well um set up a link with the nro he says which is what they're going to need to uh get access to uh the satellite which plays such a prominent role in the film uh the nro of course the national reconnaissance office primarily responsible for our global spying surveillance satellite system uh got to see them most in action in our episode about pine gap mm-hmm. and he the last thing in there is he says falsify fbi approval um this is a shrug from me but i'll pitch it to you do you think the nsa actually needs fbi approval for anything they want to do i'm not sure um, unless it's like domestic stuff because FBI would be in charge of domestic surveillance, like, and they would need warrants or something. But I, the fact that they would need FBI approval kind of kills a lot of the plot, though, because presumably at the end, they didn't even know the FBI was watching that mob group. So it's, I don't know, it's a little confusing why you would ask for that. Okay. But this goes back to your Bruckheimer salad. Like, he's just throwing stuff out to sound cool, maybe. <laughs> there's there's a few more of those. We're not out of the salad yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Let's let's jump ahead a little to uh, some more salad. This is when they um, – uh, we're going to jump ahead to when they get uh, a line in that Will Smith might be a person of interest. And uh, dude says – uh, we're going to need a FinCEN, an EPIC, and a DRD workup on this guy. So let's uh, let's Google some acronyms here. FinCEN, uh, that one came up pretty clean. That's obviously going to be the Finan- Financial Crime Enforcement Network. That's a branch of the Treasury Department, which provides intelligence uh, and analytics to uh, law enforcement agencies, mostly regarding money laundering, but also some other financial crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense that to me that they would look at Will Smith to, to see if there's anything there. Uh, I don't think they found anything, but they did plant some false accusations against Smith, uh, presumably using that network. Well, this is what they use to watch um, Will Smith's character and... Uh... Lisa Bonet, uh, her character, which is Rachel Banks, um, they noticed uh, regular transactions coming out of Will Smith's account and equaling the ones that are coming into Rachel Banks's account. Uh-huh. I kind of wanted to mark a little plus spy points on using that. I mean, like you know, when when you're looking at targeting and you're watching your target, you know, financial transactions are obviously really important and you got this guy that's just given money to this person that he's clearly doesn't want to be seen watching. By the way, Rachel Banks would be a cutout uh, since we just talked about a cutout. Cause she's the link between Will Smith and Brill. Um, so to, to prevent 
the two of them being seen together, there's this intermediary. And so Rachel would have been the cutout. And so what he's doing is paying her for information. She gets the information from Brill, but uh, you know, our NSA guys don't know about that. They just know that Will Smith is a married man meeting with this woman regularly and giving her money. So they're going to use that information as leverage against him or possibly use it as leverage against him. Right. And also wonder like what's, what's going on there. Like, you know, blackmail is, is suggested, uh, you know, as, as whether or not maybe he's being blackmailed by someone. And if so, then that would indicate that there's something there that maybe you can find out about and leverage against him. Epic is a little shakier. The closest I can come on that is uh, the El Paso intelligence center which runs under the Drug Enforcement Agency, although it does have uh, 21 other agency partners, they mostly seem to be focused on Mexico <laughs> and South America, <laughs> to be honest, the, so- or wow. the southwestern border. They, they operate within the United States, uh, but uh, I think these are the guys that would be more, you'd be more likely to go and ask them if they knew anything about uh, drug cartel activities uh, in the U.S. than uh, what we see here, because they say they want an epic run on Will Smith, and later in the film, it's epic that returns the information on Gene Hackman. So it's kind of like in the ballpark, but not quite on base. <laughs> I would <Yeah>. say <laughs> right that uh, the epic computer system, but it's also possible they just thought epic was a cool acronym. And that this has nothing to do with the El Paso intelligence. Yeah, right. Well, it could have been they were just trying to see if he had any drug connections of any sort or whatever. Hey, sure. Why not? I, I guess. I mean, they're just looking for as much leverage as they can get. But I mean, I I, I, I agree with you. I it, it was kind of a lot. Of, I I feel like this was just this all sounds really cool. So let's just have them like just just barf out a bunch of acronyms and it'll sound cool. <laughs> and then the least or the least uh, substantiated of the acronyms that they're tossing around is the DRD. Uh, I couldn't find, I mean, you and I, we both found lists. Uh, yours was longer than mine. I think you found like a list of 44 possible mm-hmm. meanings of DRD. Uh, what do you think is your most plausible matching acronym? Well, I found two that I, when I went through them that probably made the most sense. It was like data requirements document, which is like we have to figure out what we need to – we don't know what we need to know, so we need to figure out what it is we need to know so that we know what data would be required to fulfill what we need to know type of thing. So that's that. And then there was like a decision resource database, which I'm not even sure what that is. Um, but to, to be honest, there were so many DRD acronyms. I I found like a list of military and government acronyms and none of them really made sense. So I'm not sure, but we're, we're just going to stick with the Bruckheimer fun salad to go with the burnt steak. Sure. Yeah. Some decent points for FinCEN, some lesser points for Epic and no points for DRD as far as, (laughs) as, as far as. Uh, factoring into the park bench rating of this film. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. I, we did jump ahead. A, did we? Or are we cool here? 
No, we're good. They are going to. Uh, they're going to contact. They're going to get Jack Black on the line first. At first, I thought maybe he was working for the NRO because he does have the satellite access. Mm-hmm. But now I'm not really sure about that. I'm not sure that the NRO is actually shown in this film. I, I think I think Jack and Seth are actually NSA. I can't be a hundred percent sure, but um, they're they're calling him to get the wiretap, and and he's like, "Well, what's the authorization on it?" And they say, "Oh, it's 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 been FBI approved." This is just Jamie Kennedy on the phone saying it's been approved. It's a training operation, and Jack Black just takes his word for it. And I think there should be a lot. I mean, I know there should be, and I think there would be a lot more paperwork involved in this. And so I'll throw out some minus spy points on that. Um, Also, I mean, increasingly, as I mentioned that even if at the beginning of this film, uh, Jack and Seth are under the delusion that this is just a training exercise, uh, the events of the film should really very quickly (laughs) <laughs> show them that it's not right <laughs> um they so the at this point this is before so this is before with will smith has entered the scene they're gonna go first after jason lee that's our uh nature scientist guy with the videotape he makes a copy of it you know they never found the original which should have just been s- still well, they they mentioned it that when they raided the house, that's how they figured out he made a copy. So presumably they would have shut down that that the original because it would have been at Jason. Because remember they listened in to oh Jason right, Lee but them talking. having them having the original doesn't let them off the hook. They need it, the copy, right? Right, yeah. right, right. Actually, I think they made a jump in logic in assuming there was a copy, but at least they they threw out some justification for it that he had the definitely had the capability of making a copy right uh with all his video editing software they call in the the you know as jason lee makes a break for it uh you know they that's when they you know yell at jack black over their comms like you know we need a satellite uh view of of what's going on and he's got to give the instructions for that i think they should have had that satellite watching his place in advance in fact, I'm pretty sure that's what Voight asked for, and I'm pretty sure that's what Jack Black said, like, it's already done. Mm-hmm. So just a little sloppiness there for, for Mr. Black. Um, you know, don't wait until the guy is running across the rooftops to start telling the satellite what to focus on. You could have just been right. focusing on <laughs> his house in the first place. Let's also mention that when they are calling out these uh, eye in the sky satellites to uh, pinpoint and give them a view of what's going on on the ground. Uh, they yell out um, longitude, latitude, and uh, hours and minutes, mm-hmm. which is accurate to a uh, about a square mile. So in reality, they would have to give a little more information to. Um, get the satellite to see what they're what they're trying to see it also seems i don't know a little weird to me like a lot of well i don't know a lot of times like they know the satellite only knows where to look because they tell it where to look 
because they know where the guy is, which seems like it kind of defeats the purpose of the satellite. <laughs> Just overall, overall, the, um, I think the surveillance capabilities of satellites are, are great for sure. Um, I was just listening to uh, Spycast did uh, had a NRO historian uh, talk about this. He mostly talked about stuff from the sixties and seventies, which was unfortunate because oh. I was really hoping to hear about like what the real capabilities of these satellites would have been mm -hmm. uh, in 98. But um, I feel like the, the surveillance capabilities of these satellites are at least definitely in 1998, uh, more about like monitoring communications than they are particularly useful at uh, quickly, like in the moment of an action Bruckheimer car chase kind of thing, uh, dialing in on like a moving target on the ground. They are also definitely supplementing their uh, surveillance web with uh, full access to all of the security cameras in the area um, seems like at least I think I'm pretty sure I see shots where they're accessing even private security cameras. Yeah. The store that he ran in through, which is how we get the connection. Apparently he went to college with uh, Will Smith and they're in like a lingerie store and they got access to the security cameras. I know the internet was around in 98, and uh, but I, I know a lot of stores didn't have security cams on the internet like we do today. Like you know, you can get those cams for home, or like they have those doorbells now that like film their motion activated. Sure. And so I presume you could did somebody at that level of um, access to stuff could get into that, but I don't know how uh, a local security cam that's probably not on the internet would have been accessed. But again, I have heard some crazy science stories reading, you know, there's that, there's that uh, spycraft documentary on Netflix and then reading Snowden's book and reading some other stuff about tech that's been around for a long time. Even when we had Francis on the show, they could listen into, they knew what type of car was started just by listening to the sound of the starter. So maybe there's some crazy high tech thing, but like, I, I don't really know if it's that plausible that in 98, you could access a local security cam footage. Well, right. Yeah. I think, I think this is, I think this is the era where you'd have to go and like ask the store manager to take you to the VHS tape. Right. Or, or whatever disc or whatever they were using to record. Um, you would have to ask the manager for their footage. I don't know that you could just like hack into it. Right. Well, Jason, uh, Jason Lee's not using a digital camera for his work. Right. Which is why they had to, right. Which is why, that's why I'm confused. Why would the lingerie store's security camera be accessible at, in 98? It's probably not on the internet. Mm -hmm. you know I, so I'm, I was, that, that kind of bothered me. But regardless, when they start going through it and like they, they'd even mentioned their software was making like kind of hypotheses or guesses. So they kind of had like a, they were trying to figure out if he dropped the tape into Will Smith's bag, 
they do this cool like spin camera spin around. So it's basically like the logic of the software making guesses off the light and stuff like that um, and the shape. Um, so that was kind of cool and that was kind of plausible, but just being able to access the camera like that without getting it from the manager was kind of like unbelievable. But I did like the table talk. We mentioned this earlier in the intro that, uh, you know, Jack Black's kind of always playing devil's advocate. But, you know, I'm, I always really enjoy seeing some amount of analysis in spy films because we don't get a lot of it. So there's there's like two or three scenes where everybody's around a table having a conversation, trying to make a guess about something. It's really quick, but like, you know, it's a it's a nice little touch to some amount of analysis. And that, that's kind of what they're doing is they're. They're using this software to kind of make kind of guesses based on the light and and stuff like that to where, well, does this bag have something new in it or is it just kind of like somebody moved weird or something? Well, I was going to talk about this later, but you've you've invested enough into the topic that I got to go and say okay. I didn't I didn't like this part. And it was my number three worst tradecraft. The the. Okay, the the spinning around the subject that they that oh. we see. Um, let's remember this is like almost the same. It might even be. It's very close to the same year as the Matrix, which oh. made like bullet time super. Like, uh, I mean, after the Matrix, everything was fucking bullet time, right? Yeah, <laughs> like it was fucking goddamn everywhere. Um, so it's, it's a super new, like clever toy that filmmakers really want to play with, Uh but I don't think, I mean, I just don't, I don't buy it, uh, in, in the way that it, you know, that they can have the computer extrapolate what could have been happening, like on the other side of where the camera is. And especially the stuff with the bag, like, Mm. You know, because again, they they had to go onto the other side. So, what the? How does the computer have any fucking idea what's going on over there? Um, did not did not like that part. And uh, of all the, let's see. I mean, I think that the tech in this movie is because I think it's super science fiction for 1998. A lot of it. Um. A lot of it I don't think is science fiction anymore. <laughs> and we'll have some other notes on that. Uh, but I I wanted to at least flag this one as like, uh-uh, bullshit. This, this is not how it works. But on the other hand, we're at the Bruckheimer Barbecue. And I appreciate a movie that if it's going to do shit like this, let me know early. So I can settle back in my chair and say, okay, this is the kind of movie I'm watching. No problem. Right. It makes it makes all the rest of the medicine go down a lot easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jason Lee gets waxed by a bus. And uh now we're on to and this is our this is our, you know, Jason Lee is our uh whatchamacallit? What's his name? Our Leslie Banks. No, not Leslie Banks, but uh the guy from The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um Lord, the Frenchman, Louis Bernard. Oh, Louis, Louis Bernard. Right? Yeah. Jason yeah. Lee is our Louis Bernard. And guy's passing the info. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I'm right. starting to see the man who knew too much that you were talking about. Right. It's, right. It's before he movie. gets killed. And then yeah. Will Smith is our Leslie Banks or right. our, or our uh, Jimmy Stewart character. Right. He's, he's got information, except at least in the man who knew too much, like 
he knew he had something. He, he knew something. That he didn't know what character. it was. Right. In this it, case, Will Smith is completely fucking clueless that he's right. that something's been passed to him. But that's going to put them onto Will Smith. They're going to check in with him. Uh, well, I mean, they're going to tap his phone. So I think they're going to say, like, we need a FinCEN, an Epic, a DRD, you know, do all the do all the salad stuff that we talked about. Um, they're going to pay a visit to his home. I doubt, but don't know whether the NSA can legally pose as local police with uh, local badges. But, you know, I would think they couldn't legally do it anywhere, but it would be even worse domestically to do, I guess. Right. Um, unless there's some sort of counterintelligence thing going on, but th- I would think the FBI would have been in charge. But like you had said, they're doing everything that they wanted the bill to pass. So this is definitely all highly illegal. Right. Right. Yeah. But, they're- I, but I enjoyed their cover story though. You know, I, I thought they did a great job or, you know, the writer or director, whoever creating the cover story where they're like, we, we heard that you might have, you know, witnessed the death of, you know, this guy. And, uh, we're investigating possible extortion involvement or something. Did he give you any sensitive information or sensitive material? I thought it was a great, you know, um, cover for them. Like, why are you at my house? You know, like, well, we know you were there. We found this card on his person. We just wanted to know if he gave you anything or what. It, it was great, but... What I really wanted to give some minus spy points was pulling the Rachel Banks card because they were like, oh, you're at a lingerie store. And this is where that line you talked about where Will Smith improv And then they, he goes, oh, no, I like to do cross. It's for your wife, right? And then they go, well, we thought it might be for Rachel Banks. And that's when Will Smith was like, good night, gentlemen. This conversation's over. I don't think that would have been the greatest time to start, like, strong-arming leverage. Like, you want him trusting you as much as possible. I mean, I know there's, like, time sensitivity going on, but they're already planning on breaking in and doing surveillance on him. I don't know why you would want to have him suspicious of you. You're 100%, so I, you're 100% right. So I'm going to make this my number three worst tradecraft, was even bringing up Rachel Banks. You, you, you're, you're coming in posing like, oh, we think the guy might have been involved in some amount of extortion or something. Did he give you information? Oh, no, he didn't give me anything. Like, oh, so you were going to the lingerie. Was that for your wife? You know, we thought it was about Rachel Banks. They just literally showed their hand. They were like, we know a lot about you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in which they already know he's an attorney. You know, so I don't, I don't know why we, they would think this is a good move. So yeah, that's making yes, my number no, three worst yes, trip. Not a good move. Good catch. Good catch. <laughs> Speaking again of illegal, um, I'm pretty sure that you know because they're they're videoing that interaction. I guess they've got some secret body cams. You know, so again, we've we've established these guys don't really give a shit about legality. Uh, so I'll just go on and say, like, I like the fact that someone is furiously scribbling exact notes about what kind of pen he has, what kind of watch he has, what kind of cell phone he has, etc. Um, this is all plus spy points for me so that they can plant their reasonable duplicates um, in his stuff later, a little bit later when he's out um, rowing with his buddy. Right. That was kind of cool that how they waited to, 
you know, it would be a lot easier to plant that stuff when he's out rowing with his buddy because he's going to have a locker room or something, right? Exactly, yeah. Rather than getting into his home or something and raising any amount of suspicion. or Like, that was, I thought that was clever. It is in a public space, though. There was no one there, so presumably not a lot of people row over there. I, I don't know. But I, I thought it was clever. Real soon, I want to have a discussion on the exact technology that they're using that they're planting in his watch, his phone, his pen, his zipper, his pants, his shoe, mm-hmm. all that stuff. But um, <clears throat> they also, uh, as as part of this operation, they're also going to do, well, they want to search his house, which is great. I forget, I guess this happened before, I forget if it happened before they replaced his stuff with rowing when he was rowing or after, but it's not that important. What's important to me is that um, when they toss his house, uh, obviously their primary objective is to look for his, the tape. Um, mm. Not finding that, they, uh, well, they trash the place and make it look like a major act of vandalism uh, and kind of like make some moves to make it look like it's just some, you know, anarchist kids, uh, you know, just being hooligans, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a nice little touch, I think, on, you know, if you're going to toss the place, uh, it's it's nice to have that little bit of cover, uh, can kind of close down some of the suspicion loops that Will Smith's character might go through. Um, And they put up all their quick, fast surveillance. They really love putting... Uh, cameras and smoke detectors in this film. Um, I think that's their favorite place to put cameras. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that gives them that uh, that gives them enough of a bead on Will Smith that they're going to also catch uh, when he contacts Lisa Bonet, and so that they can and they know that he's going to meet her in the square, and so they can have like you know a, a massive surveillance operation to know everything that they talk about. And this, I mean, I don't know. You tell me, how, how'd you like, how'd you like this scene? Uh, I thought it was cool. Cause they uh, had those like directional mics and they had people planted all over the place. And like a lot of them were kind of like dressed up like they were homeless or whatever. And um, it was a lot of team. So I kind of liked the, the teamwork aspect so they could catch as much as they could. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know that they considering the technology that they were establishing in this film I don't know that they needed all of those mics they probably could have used something else I think it was a bit over planned um, I wonder like isn't, is, isn't any of the tech that they planted on him capable of just recording his voice recording That's- conversations that he's having with people next to him, they got his pen and his pager and his pants and his shoes. Well, those were all GPS, weren't they? That's how they were tracking him, like his location. So maybe those weren't sound bugs; they were just GPS locators. Right, and so them needing—I um, don't know—them needing also needing a line of sight. Seth Green makes a point of that. Uh, you know, that we have to have line of sight to, to hear them. I think that only applies to laser microphones, and I don't think this is the right application for those. 
laser microphones pick up uh, sound basically by like uh, beating off the, um, I don't know, the vibrations of thin materials. Uh, well, there, when- there's those weird like sniper mics, right? Those skinny ones. Like I think they showed a, uh, we got a shot of one of them. Um, they they kind of look like I don't know, space rays or something. They're called like directional mics, I think. Yeah, that was the big problem that I had uh, and sometimes have when researching for these episodes is, you know, when I go Googling uh, to try to find out like what the capabilities of certain devices are, like you'll, you can often find information on like what the, what the capabilities of the very earliest ones are and information Uh on what the capabilities of the very latest ones are. But finding out like what exactly was possible in 1998 can be very difficult. Right. Um, but yeah, that link I just sent you is kind of what I was thinking of, mm-hmm. but I can't find anything that looks like what I remember. But that when the guy opened his bag and it was like that long rod, that's kind of what I would think. And, and line of sight, I believe would have blocked that. Um, Cause you're picking up, you, those are were meant for like long range from what I remember. And so if, I guess if someone was in the way, you couldn't pick up the sound waves or something. Well, if anyone's got any uh, actual expertise uh, in this area, definitely hit us up on Facebook. We would love to hear uh, Absolutely. anybody knows about this stuff. Um, you know, some people, you know, we're in L.A. There's a lot of movie production people that know a lot about, you know, just in the making of a movie often requires yeah. like capturing audio at a distance and restricting uh, what other sounds are, are coming in uh, on your stuff. But um, I want to—I I do want to circle back real soon on the tech. But uh, before we do that, let's just wrap up like this whole John Voight plan, like like all the like the I don't know psychological and tactical approaches that they're using. Um, they're going to at some point uh, decide this is this is kind of after he's divested himself of his tracking devices. I guess they make the decision to murder Lisa Bonet's character and try to frame him for that, uh, which would make him easier to track being on, you know, wanted for murder. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm iffy on giving this plus by points because I'm not convinced this is warranted. Well, to be honest, I mean, like, I know we're going to get there kind of soon, but I, I want, I wanted to mark, just the whole screwing with Will Smith's life. This goes back to my bringing up Rachel in the first place, showing their hand, like the whole ruining Will Smith's life. I think I wanted to mark as my number one worst tradecraft. Like they could have gotten a lot more information and understanding about him without revealing themselves. Like the fact that they were so heavy handed on him is more like kind of like a extortion type of an approach you know, using like, like I'm going to cut all your credit cards. I'm going to make your wife upset. I'm going to do all this other stuff. You got to tell us what you know. Like he obviously doesn't know anything at this point. Like what? I don't think they gain anything by going to these extremes. And I think the murder of Rachel and frame and trying to frame him for it. I think you really hit the core of just to the degree they were willing to go. And it, and it wasn't like he could do anything. He didn't even know that he had anything. He thought the the mob that he was working with, like the rival mob guys that 
were, were trying to ruin his life. Like it totally backfired and it, it ended up making them get more caught. If they were more like, okay about stuff or, or like did a better, like kind of more of a hands-off approach. Just a, probably a lighter, a light, a lighter touch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Right. And I'm, I'm yeah. with you a hundred percent. Sure. This makes, uh, this makes my worst number two. So I'm very close to you on this. Um, right. They, you know, ruining his credibility. Uh, I don't see, I don't see what it has to do with anything. If he has the tape, he has the tape. The tape is the tape, you know, right. it, it, you know, Charles Manson could present this fucking tape in, in, <laughs> in a courtroom and it would still show you know it would still show jamie kennedy killing jason robards while right. john Voigt fucking twirls his mustache over right. to the side <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's yeah pretty much this is very incriminating <laughs> yeah like even if you wanted to argue that because it was so incriminating and it was so time sensitive, this is why they were so heavy handed. I would like to think somebody this high up in the NSA would have known this was probably the wrong move. There's you know? maybe maybe there's a reason that he he hasn't made deputy director. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Maybe he actually uh, sucks at his job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, including the fact now, I think, uh, I don't know, you might have had a quibble on this, but there's a point where it looks like uh, uh, Will Smith's cell phone no longer works. And, I mean, I feel like they disabled it. I, yeah. I, I can't be sure. But if they did, then that is super minus spy points that's totally dumb like let the man talk of right? course of course <laughs> i'm not sure i'm not sure what the capabilities were in 98 of uh being able to like get that phone information again it's a case where we definitely know they can do it now right I'm not sure not sure they had those kind of uh relationships with mm -hmm. the telecom companies mm -hmm. in 98 but um yeah but there's so much that, you know, that lighter touch, like they, these guys should have been smart enough to be able to just like quietly follow Will Smith around and find out if he knows anything and figure out that he in fact does not. Right. <laughs> but it wouldn't have made as exciting a movie. Right. The man who knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's cut it here and call that part one. We have talked about the stakes of the movie and so far have primarily focused on the villainous side of things. John Voight's nefarious misuse of the NSA surveillance apparatus against Will Smith, who doesn't yet have any idea why his government has suddenly turned brutally against him. In the second half of the film, Smith's encounter with Gene Hackman's paranoid ex-NSA operative is going to create at least the opportunity to turn this entirely one-sided battle of wits into something at least vaguely resembling a fair fight. And that's what we're going to discuss in part two, coming up next week. Meanwhile, I ask you, are you enjoying the show? If so, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, 
but you know what really helps us out? Mention this podcast to a friend that you think might like it. There's no better way to help an indie podcast like this grow. It's the only way we can do it. Just one listener at a time. And you're the key to that. Thank you. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler. <laughs>